You are listening to an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org. Now, as you see, the verses that are on this very first slide this morning, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, that is the verse, Matthew 28, 20, that governs our class. We call this class the M2820 class. And as you see that verse, I've highlighted one particular, I don't know which button is the uh, highlighter on this, but uh, I've highlighted make disciples right here because that is the key that we focus on in this great commission. And as you read this verse, you see that Jesus came to his disciples and he told them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a lot of theology that's in that verse when it comes to making disciples. We'll talk about different aspects of that this morning if we have time. But I want to start this morning, I know we have a small group, and I want to just ask you, what in your minds constitutes making disciples? How do you go about doing that, practically speaking? I, I know that you know, our family, we have little kids, and those little kids live in our home, so it's easy for us. They're captive to make disciples of them. Uh, we teach them the Word. We pray with them. We can counsel them. We can work with them in various ways and lead them, bring them to church and lead them in, in, into the gospel that way. But what about others? What about strangers? What about people that we don't know uh, as well as our own children or our, our relatives, maybe people that we work with or people that we interact with? What does making disciples look like? Does anybody have a practical example of how that's been done or how that was done in your life or how you do that now? Forming relationships, right? It doesn't stop at the at conversion. Doesn't stop at conversion. Anybody else? Lifestyle. Lifestyle. And and how so? The old uh, Baptist adage, and I can crack on Baptist, I grew up as one, uh, thou shalt not drink, dance, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, there, there have been times uh, where people thought that doing their due diligence was carrying a big Bible on Sunday morning and making sure that their neighbors saw them wearing their finest suits and dresses walking out the car, uh, you know, that way. And that was considered lifestyle, but I know what you're saying. There, there is a difference in a Christian. It is, uh, it is interesting. Uh, I work secularly, and, and there are things that come up in, in my work environment 
uh, from time to time, uh, whether it be a fellowship after after work uh, at a certain place or doing a certain thing that, that I just don't take part of. Uh, and I don't think that it's appropriate for Christians to, to do. Um, took a few times for that to happen, for folks to ask, well, why aren't you doing that? And sometimes you, those opportunities come up. I know you didn't want this, but okay. I can't hear you back there. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let me show you. Uh, I, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about what kind of people that we make disciples of. And I thought about bringing in uh, something this morning because it's what I'm about to show you is, is a biblical passage that applies to all of us. Uh, in no way am I saying that the world or those that are in it are any different than any of us are or were, uh, being the operative word. Uh, we all come to Christ the same way. Take a look at this. These are the people that we have to make disciples from. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Psalms, chapter 14. I'm not sure how to... Book of Psalms, chapter 14, and it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have no knowledge. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, they there they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And then David concludes with, Oh, that salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. The qualities that natural man has without God Corruption, abomination, understanding or lack thereof, the inability to do good. That sounds pretty, pretty, pretty staunch. And a lot of people will, will look at humanity without the gospel and they'll say, there are a lot of people who don't believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but yet they do good things. What do we say to that? Human good. human good. Is there a difference between human good and God's good? Yeah. It's very easy to do good things and help people. Patting myself on the back. Oh, how wonderful am I? It's another thing entirely to do things and help people and, and to honor God simply because God is worthy of honor. Let's look at the New Testament for a minute about what the New Testament says about the unbelieving heart. 
Ephesians 4.17 is the first verse that came to my mind, and it talks about the futility of the mind. Paul talks about, so I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Romans, he talks about being dark-hearted, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And if, this, if it, all of that weren't bad enough, in James, James talks about the unbelieving heart being enemies of God. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to make himself to be a friend of the world makes himself to be an enemy of God. That particular passage is one that a lot of folks really get hung up on because there seems to be this predominant view in the Western world that there's some sense of moral neutrality. There isn't. Either you're a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. Paul and Timothy talks about being ignorant, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. In Ephesians, he talks about his heart being callous, or other unbelievers' hearts being callous, they having become callous, having them having, have given themselves over to sensuality for a practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then in Ephesians, he talks about the state of their heart. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So in short, what we're dealing with when we go to make disciples of people, we're, we're dealing with people that have all of these qualities in play, and, and all of us had them too as natural human beings before Christ. Futile-minded, dark-hearted, enemies of God who were ignorant, callous, and dead in sin. That's who we make disciples of. That's who we're sharing the truth with. That's what's at stake. And if I were to summarize it this way, the objections that people come up with, if you think about the objections that people have when you talk to people about faith, what are some of them? Let's, let's just talk about some of them. It, for people that have talked to others about Christ and have gotten to the point where you have built relationships and you've been in conversation with people, what are some of the objections that come up? Anybody have any that they want to throw out? His, his mother and father had a ceremony 30 years after they were married to disavow any form of Christianity that was in their original wedding. Mm -hmm. His mother was a very good person. He said to me at the very end, will my mother be in heaven? I said... If she believed that Jesus Christ was her Savior, died in her place, 
She'll be there. Did she believe that? He said, no. I said, well, then you've answered your own question. He said, well, if she's not there, I don't want to be there either. No. Shake the dust off your feet. I guess he, uh, he might not have been thinking about what the alternative to not being there was. That's sad. Anybody else have any, any thoughts on uh, common objections to the faith? Uh, one I've seen is uh, church is full of hypocrites. I don't, I don't want to be associated with that. A bunch of hypocrites in the church. So they don't live the way that they're supposed to live. Interesting. I want to throw out four summaries, and, and these are broad, these are categories that I think the common objections of man come from. And, and certainly all of the ones that we've talked about this morning fit into one of these categories. There are, there are four thought categories, if you will, or philosophical categories of the human heart that any religious system, including Christianity, has to answer. The very first one, and, and this is one that has been under attack quite a bit, the first three words of the Hebrew Bible start out with Bereshith bara Elohim. We translate that into five words in English, in the beginning God created. I've heard a lot of objections, for instance, about evolution and about uh, the processes that, that people believe uh, when it comes to creation uh, in an effort to, to disbunk Christianity. Anytime anybody ever brings up one of these things, if I ask them, well, what do you believe? How do you believe the earth was created? Where do you believe you came from? Well, we believe we came from this, and then blah, 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 all the, all the way through the processes, you know, apes all the way down to amoebas. What they're talking about is they're talking about a process after creation. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the very first verse. And then it goes into three chapters of how God did that creation, the process. In the beginning, God created. That's the problem that secular thinkers have a real problem with. Uh, even the brightest and the biggest secular thinkers out there uh, ultimately come down to we don't know when they're pushed on where did creation start. Many of them will go to the Big Bang. Well, something had to be there to bang, didn't it? Didn't it take something creating it? Uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, recently before he passed away, uh, wrote a book on the law of gravity itself was the impetus for creation. Huh? Who created the law? In the beginning, God created. The Christian worldview has a creatorial stance. God created the heaven and the earth. Period. The process happened afterwards. 
And I think that people get stuck on that uh, because they're trying to do anything they can to deny the rest of the Bible. To, if we can deny that, we can deny the rest of it. If God created, he had to have a destiny in mind for us. Philippians says, for many, who, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our destiny is glory. Our destiny is heaven. What's the destiny of the humanist? What's the destiny of the nihilist? Live for the now. There is no destiny. We're dust. We're pond scum. We live, we die. And if you look at the, the, the ideas that have come up in the new thinking from people in Western academia, for instance, the humanists, the secular humanists, the, the nihilists, uh, all of the isms and schisms that, that come out of modern-day thought, they're really going back millennia, right back to the East, because all of the Eastern religions that are out there uh, believe these things too. Uh, the continent where Nathan is from, for instance, uh, life is a leader, a play. You, you come, you enter into the play, you do your thing, and you go. You come back, and you enter again, and you do your thing, and you go. A karmic cycle. Uh, in Buddhism, there is no even you. It doesn't matter, but life is a play. Life is a mirage. It's an image. So these things aren't new ideas. They're old ideas. But where do they come from? What, what substantiates them? What God created and what God gave them the ability to, to have that theology because of, his because of his creation? None. A God that creates, for instance, and a God that gives a destiny has the right and the obligation to impose a moral code, doesn't he? If a God creates and he creates for a destiny, then that destiny has to have a purpose and the purpose requires a moral code. That's how we get to the morality. Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not, be do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Fill in any other sin in there. All sin is subject to God's wrath. Violate one sin, that's all it takes. And then finally, the last category that objections and questions come from is the question of meaning. What does this life mean? For the Christian, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We find our meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the life that he gives us here and the life that is to come. And the secularist has absolutely no hope of a meaning in that way. Life pretty much is meaningless. Think about it this way. If you are truly a, a secularist or a humanist and you believe that life has no meaning, that there is no destiny, that there was no creator, 
what obligates you to any sense of morality? And when you talk to these folks and you ask them, why do you believe something is right or wrong intrinsically? They give you all kinds of answers in all sorts of different directions, but none of them can tell you because God said so. None of them tell you that something is intrinsically right in all circumstances, in all times, in all seasons, or intrinsically wrong. It all becomes subjective. I feel that this is right. I feel that is wrong. Well, what happens if your neighbor doesn't feel that way? What happens if you feel something is right that I feel is wrong? What then? Who's the standard? As has been said, in some cultures people love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat them. Who's to say which one is right? Do we engage our people who we make disciples of on these topics? Do we know enough about our own Bible and about what we believe to be able to answer questions that people might have in any one of these categories. I think that's really our challenge, is being able to engage the person who has questions and who has objections to the Christian gospel with truth, pointing them to the truth of Scripture. It's hard to do. I'm not very good at it. Any thoughts on any of those categories? Does, does that make sense at all about what I was saying with origin, destiny, morality, or meaning? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the questions of, well, I'll take, I'll take the question of my mother isn't in heaven, therefore I don't want to go. Well, that's kind of a meaning question. If, if she can't, then I won't. A fairness question. How can a, how can a loving God have so much evil in the world? I think that's probably a combination of morality and meaning. If the, if the love of God is inflated to the point where God's no longer just, in other words, he doesn't hold to this moral code and he doesn't require the same from us, then, of course, how could God let evil be in the world? Meaning. All God is is love. God isn't justice. Therefore, why would God give me meaning that would require me to spend eternity in worship of him? Eternity should be paradise in the Muslim sense. It should be all about my benefit, not about his. That's the way some of those folks think. I had an opportunity to talk to somebody who called themselves an atheist one time, and anytime people say, they ask the question, why, does, why did God do X, Y, or Z, whatever it may be, why does God, the insinuation is always, if I were God, I would do it better. It often comes back to a lot of questions when people question God, it's from their own pride is what I've discovered. And I, I've talked to other people who asked that question. This was, I haven't had the opportunity to talk to many people. This was out a three-hour discussion with this guy on the side of the road. Very interesting. We hit all of these. 
but I discovered that a lot of it was based on his pride. I were God. Not that he said that, but everything in senior. If I were God, I would do it better. Pride is the original sin, isn't it? It wasn't sexual immorality that threw Satan out of the kingdom. It was pride. I think it's, it's something that I, I know for me when I have talked to people that it has been just one, one thing after another uh, listening to people's objections. Uh, when they when they when they spout them off, and and a lot of times, you, you, well, certainly you have to be in relationship with people. You have to have that friendship and and that that desire to want to to listen. A lot of times, when you when you listen to people uh, talk about objections to Christianity, it it takes a lot of time to let them get some things off their chest. There's a lot of anger there at times, uh, and. I don't typically, if I'm in relationship with people, I, I, don't, uh, I don't dive in. I, I don't hit them over the head with the Bible the first time or the second time. Uh, I'll, I'll let them say what they want to say, uh, make their objections, throw out their, their arguments. And over time, Lord willing, we can get into discussion about some of the big philosophical questions that govern all of the objections that they have. Uh, if they're if they're stuck on the on the evolution stance, for instance, the the foundational question is a question of origin. We don't start in with the processes about, you know, look at the fossil evidence or look at the the creatorial history of the the genealogies, and you know that's how we believe that uh, the Bible is true and all of that. I don't start with the processes. I start with in the beginning God created. How do you explain? as to the secularist or the evolution or evolution believer, how, how do you explain origin? And, and a person that, that truly has that worldview, and if they're truly logical, they're going to come back with, we don't know. There is no answer. Uh, evolution is a process. It is not a creation. The Big Bang is a process. It is not a creation. And if you push them to what created it, what started it, we don't know. Well, I do. In the beginning, God created it. Well, you believe in evolution, right? I'm sorry? It sounds like you're saying that you believe in that no. you believe God started evolution and pushed the first domino. That's not what you're saying. No, no, no. No, I'm not going to. Uh, even though I, even though I am a staunch uh, crea creationist, uh, I certainly uh, don't hold to the idea that uh, information was added to the human genome and, and knowledge increased and all of that. Uh, in fact, I find it humorous uh, when people spout this stuff off. Uh, I, I want to ask two questions. I want to say, number one, give me evidence of that. Who's the who's the super smart guy? Not me. Uh, and secondly, the last time I looked, any time we added anything to the human genome, we called it a birth defect. So those questions are inflammatory to people who begin to, uh, to, to question Christianity on those things. And I try to stay away from them. I don't really dive into evolution right off the bat. I dive into creation. 
I want to just slide on to the, to the last slide I have here for a minute uh, and talk about some keys to biblical evangelism for just a minute. We've hit on all of them, I think. There is no magic program, and, and what I'm trying to convey to you today is this. There is no magic program to memorize, and if I could only be better at it and only have it better memorized, I'd be a better evangelist. It doesn't exist. We are all called to make disciples, very plainly. That call applies to all of us, not just pastors, not just people who are interested in making disciples or evangelism, but all of us. And, and these keys, among others, are, are ones that I think are essential to us. We need to know those who we evangelize, and we need to have relationships with people we need to love. We need to care. We need to care about them as human beings and, and care about what's at stake for them more than anything, but also care for them as human beings, as neighbors, and meet their needs, bear their burdens, be their friends. Along with that, we do need to have biblical answers to the objections that they may have. Have you ever run into that situation where you didn't, you know, somebody raised a question and you just really felt like you didn't know the answer? Now, I'm not saying you have to know the right verse and be able to point them to it right then. You may say, you know what, let me go home and, and do a little reading and I'll get back to you. I, I believe this and this and this, but let me go back and get you the verses. That's okay. But at least be willing to do that. At least be willing to answer the objections that someone may have. The Bible gives answers to all objections. It's fully sufficient for faith and life. And if it's fully sufficient for faith and life, it's fully sufficient for faith and life. As we do this, we need to remember where the power and grace come from as we share God's truth. It's not our grace, not our power. We need to have faith and rely on His power alone. We need to remember that we once were without Christ and hopelessly lost, just like those that we might talk to. All of the qualities of natural man apply to us too. And we need to constantly remember what's at stake and that nothing in this life matters more than what's to come. Do you guys have any... T tell me about life. Who, who are you working with now? Do you, do you have opportunities in life that, that people are hearing the truth and seeing the truth in your life? I've mentioned uh, just in church service from time to time that I work in an office uh, with largely Hindu folks, uh, Indian. And, and that's interesting. It, it gives me uh, some opportunities that I normally wouldn't have. It also burdens me because, boy, I hope they don't, you know, I, I second guess myself a lot. I wish I could have said that a little differently. I wish I could have done this better. I wish I could have, you know, and I feel like I'm under a microscope quite a bit. The reality is we're all under a microscope all the time. And are we aware of that? Are, are we taking advantage of that? Are we making the relationships with people that give us those opportunities to discuss some of these things? Anybody have any that they want to share? Well, just what I want to say is not only do we need to be speaking it, but we need to be living it. 
people watch what you do when my family, none of my family, none of them are saved. And when I was saved, I was speaking it to my family a lot, but I never realized how much they were watching me. My father displayed that to me about a year after I was saved. I worked with him farming on the side. He worked a public job, and I did too. And so we always didn't get along real well together, as fathers and sons don't. So he would point to something I did, and I would not respond very well to him before I was saved. And I would, he would, I would say, because I'm stupid, because I'm stupid. He asked me why I did something. I'd say, because I'm stupid. And I would say it in anger. Well, when I was saved, I never consciously thought, no, I'm going to stop saying because I'm stupid. Well, after I was saved, I came, I was there visiting, and he was talking to me, and I'd done something. He thought it was really, really stupid. And he kept saying, come on, come on, say it, say it, say it. And I'm like, say what? 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 And they're like, say, say because you're stupid. And it's like, whoa, it dawned on me in that moment that he is watching what I'm doing and how I'm reacting. I never, I never made that conscious effort, but because I now had Christ in me and the Spirit in me, I didn't respond the same to him, and he noticed that. So evangelism's not is certainly we've got to speak, and Pastor Lay emphasized that we got to speak, we got to speak, we need to say, but we also need to be living it. People are watching, and our example is as much to do with evangelism as what we say. Amen. I know one thing for me that uh, that is important. Uh, I think it's important for all of us to have relationships with other believers that can help to hold us accountable. Uh, I know for me that uh, there are areas that I'm admittedly not very good in. Uh, I lose my temper with my kids quite a bit. Uh, give less than a witness uh, for Christian parenting than I should. Having someone come alongside me and say, you know, you ever thought about not doing that? You ever thought about doing it this way? You ever thought about doing it that way? Having a, a brother uh, or sister come alongside you and being in your life enough uh, to be able to hold you to account, to encourage and to, to admonish you as you live that life, I think is important. We're not called to do this alone. We're not called to be by ourselves. Anybody else have a thought? Uh, because we homeschool, I'm sort of in a homeschool bubble, <laughs> and I don't really, it, for the last, I don't know, 10 years or more, I just have not it, had opportunity necessarily to build relationships with anybody but believers, either at church or through our homeschooling thing, and I think about that, and I think, should I be trying to be intentional and going out to encounter others i mean the neighbor lady two doors down is about as close as i've gotten <laughs> um so i i don't know what the right thing is there but i do know that god has given me three boys to um like mark was talking about um evangelize and we've talked about um how we grew up and how just in that generation the um it was very much that let's just have them in church and that's you know that's it was more the church's job 
the church's job to teach them about God and the public school's job to teach them about the other stuff. Um, so we've uh, really wanted to be very transparent with our kids about just various things going in our, on in our lives spiritually. Um, wow, I, I really sinned there. Will you forgive me? Or, gosh, I'm really working on that. Will you, we both need to work on this. Let's work on this together. Or memorizing scripture together. Or just to be, um, to be more, again, transparent so that our, our kids see us struggling with sin uh, and seeking God for the answer to it. Um, but I think that also applies in general evangelism because, like you said, it's, you're just a bunch of hypocrites, kind of, we're all just, you know, we're, you're, you sin too, you know, whereas, um, but just, just taking opportunities to demonstrate to whoever might be not a believer that um, we're great sinners. What? Who was it said that I'm a? Oh, John, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He said I'm a great sinner, but John Newton, I'm a great sinner, but God is a great savior. Anyone else? Well, let me just go ahead and uh, and conclude then and try to remember that all of us are called to be on display. We are we are that city on a hill. We're that we're that lantern of truth in today's world to all those that God sovereignly puts on our path, whether it be our family, whether it be our friends, whether it be our neighbors, our coworkers, our strangers, people on the street, wherever it may be. Our lifestyle, yes, should reflect what we believe. We should be sincere in if we believe something, then live it, act it accordingly. And as part of that lifestyle, we're called to build relationships and to make disciples with those who don't yet know the truth. The beauty of election and the beauty of, of how God does the salvation isn't that all those that we talk to will come to faith. The beauty of election is that in all circumstances, in all times, there will be some. God has elected before the foundation of the world those who will be his. We have the privilege of being part of that process by being able to build relationships and to talk with our brothers and sisters or neighbors and friends and to lead them along the path to the point of regeneration. That's what it's about. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you that you have called us and challenged us to be part of this process, Father. Even though we weren't on that mountain when you gave this command to your apostles and your disciples, Father, we know that the command universally applies to the church. We are called, Lord, to make disciples. And as part of making disciples, Father, it takes being in community and being in relationship and being in love with our neighbors and with those whom we would talk to. Lord, burden us to be able to say the words. Give us the very words to say, Father. Give us the grace and the wisdom in the moment to be able to give the answers 
that your word provides to the objections that man will conjure up to what you have done. Lord, we ask for more and more opportunities as you see fit and as your sovereign will permits. In Christ's name, amen. This has been an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org.